Okay, let's get this started. Thank you all for coming. Um, and it is a great pleasure to host this event and on the eighth edition of what is known in my household as the Bible on the European Parliament. And I like the original Bible, we're now in eighth edition, I might point out. But, um, so I'd like just to introduce the speakers. We have to my left here, Michael Shackleton who is currently head of the European Parliament office in London and, of course, was in the European Parliament for a long time in Brussels before coming to London. And it's also a person we can thank for Europarl TV, which is one of my favourite in new innovations in the European Parliament and, of course, one of the co-authors of the great book. And then after Michael, we have David Curry, who's a former MEP and a former MP who entered the European Parliament in 1979, of course, when it was first elected and chaired the Agriculture Committee and also was a rapporteur on the budget um, and then elected to the House of Commons in 1987 and has been a minister here in London on agriculture and fisheries and also housing, local government, urban re regeneration and was chair of the Environment Select Committee and a number of other all-party groups in the Commons. So somebody with experience of both the House of Commons and much more importantly the European Parliament. And then we have Hugo Brady who is from the Centre for European Reform um, and is a re research fellow on EU institutions and justice and home affairs, previously worked as a desk officer on a political division of the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs, as a research associate on the Constitutional Treaty at the Institute for European Affairs in Dublin. So we have perspective from our friends across the water. And then we have, last but not least, my colleague here at the LSE, Sarah Hagerman, who is lecturer in EU politics at the European Institute at the LSE, joined the LSE in September 2009 and is also head um, of VoteWatch, votewatch.eu, the, the website for tracking voting in the European Parliament. Before joining LSE, Sarah worked as a policy analyst at the Brussels-based European Policy Centre and also worked, it doesn't mention it on my thing here, but uh, also worked in the Danish delegation in the Council of Ministers, so she has a perspective from the other institution in Brussels that shall not be named. But um, the topic for this evening is on that much more important institution, the European Parliament, and we are going to discuss the European Parliament, finally a powerful and legitimate institution, notice with a question mark at the end. And Michael, can you tell us an answer, the answer to that question? Okay. Actually, what I thought I would do is, as usual, not actually answer the question directly, but perhaps just take the opportunity to look back over eight editions of this book and try to identify what it is that I think has changed in the Parliament, uh, apart from the fact that the three authors look a good deal greyer and older than when we first did the book, though in those days we didn't actually put pictures on books. That was at a time of greater seriousness, where the book was just straight blue on the back. And now you will have seen we've gone for a much more jazzy cover. And we've even got a website now that we're, that we're on which we are going to try to answer all the critiques that our book will receive. However, when I look back over these uh, 20 years that uh, have somehow enabled the three authors to remain friends, remarkably, <laughs> through eight editions, um, it, you know, the fact that we're in three different countries has got nothing to do with the state of our relations. We continue to be good friends, it's just we don't see each other so often. Uh, there, there, there are three things that I wanted to say. About, uh, about how I see that the Parliament has moved on. Uh, none of them massively original, but nevertheless my sort of take on what's been going on. 
First of all, I think the Parliament has moved from being much more, uh, that the stakes in the Parliament have moved beyond being institutional into being ideological. Much of my career in the Parliament was devoted to assisting the members of the European Parliament to make the institution a more powerful player inside the Brussels world. Uh, it took it, a lot of effort to persuade the Council of Ministers that the European Parliament was worth dealing with and I took great pride in showing that actually the civil servants of the European Parliament were just as good as anybody in the Council of Ministers. I'm not saying that they all now are convinced that that is true, but it's nevertheless, based on my experience of dealing directly with the officials of the council, the, the level of uh, ability or mediocrity is equivalent in the two institutions. I don't think there's something unique about the council, and I think demystifying the council has been a very important part of what has gone on. And I'm not suggesting that the institutional struggle is over. There will always be, in a sort of bicameral arrangement like the one that we now have, a struggle for influence between the two institutions. But it seems to me that a large part of the institutional agenda, indeed the largest part, has been completed. I do not hear anybody in the European Parliament arguing for a major extension of the European Parliament's powers. Whereas, 20 years ago, at every IGC, we were saying, hang on, we got this, but we'd like to have something extra the next time we meet. Nobody, as far as I know, in the European Parliament, for example, <coughs> argues for the idea that we should have a right of legislative initiative beyond the rather limited one that exists under the treaty at the moment. Nobody is arguing for that. More or less, we've accepted the institutional structure that we've got and that we will operate within it. Along with that has gone a reinforcement of the ideological divisions inside the Parliament. Uh, I'm not trying to suggest that suddenly uh, you know, we are recreating Westminster at the European level. Uh, it's manifest that the treaty rules which oblige us to get absolute majorities at second reading or in amendments to the budget drive a certain consensual me mechanisms the, desire, the obligation for the EPP and the PES to come together on many issues. Nonetheless, it seems to me that the stakes have got higher inside the Parliament and the kind of issues that we're now dealing with start to be ones where it's not so easy to find these kinds of compromises um, between the two sides of the Parliament. I think that is partly because the treaties have taken us into areas which are much, much more difficult to find compromises on. I think the third pillar, kind of, uh, if we can still refer to it in those terms, uh, of the JHA, if we want, or uh, Area of Freedom of Security and Justice, AFSJ, or whatever you like to call it, uh, uh, these are things which necessarily bring out a more ideological aspect to the Parliament. Uh, and I think the same is true if you're talking about uh, uh, what we're th the new powers that one has to say yes or no to international agreements. I think it's really interesting to see the argument that took place on SWIFT, one of the more significant developments of the last two years, uh, and which is going to re reappear with the so-called PNR agreement, so the personnel number 
international number record uh, question of to whether we're going to give uh, the details of, of passengers on aeroplanes to the Americans or not. This is a, a highly ideological question on which I as a civil servant have no particular view, though as an individual I do have a view. Uh, but uh, it takes us into territory which is much more ideological than it was in the past. Uh, and by the way, it makes it much more difficult for people like me to play the institutional card that I've always played in my career, that uh, we are being drawn into a greater ideological struggle than we were. Point number one. Point number two, Lisbon. On my day job, my job is to say that the European Parliament was the great winner of the Lisbon Treaty, and uh, that is what I'm paid to say. And as long as it doesn't go outside these walls, I, of course, will deny anything that uh, anybody would to report of what I'm about to say. Uh, I don't think it's quite as simple as that, should we put it that way. I think uh, I would even use the phrase that one of my colleagues in Brussels uses. He says, there is a dark side to Lisbon. Uh, there is a side to Lisbon where, number one, there's a tendency for some people in the Parliament to, dare I say it, as I see there's no actual member of the European Parliament present because we organised this event on a day when they couldn't possibly be here. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, and they complained to me and said, why have you done it on that day? And I blamed you at LSE. However, what it means is I can say things that I couldn't otherwise say and hope that you don't report me. Uh, Chatham one, House rules. Uh, yeah, one of those things is to say that there is a tendency for one or two members of the European Parliament to get maybe just a little bit too big for their boots and to, uh, and to push a little bit harder than I think they uh, ought really to do and certainly uh, as people like me would, if I were there would urge them to do, I think uh, uh, the framework agreement with the Commission quite frankly was an outrageous thing to have done which came, uh, and where my position is very close to that of the Council in considering that it came close to actually infringing the treaties um, you can say, well, it's all bon guerre, but I think there's a question about how far you can push uh, on these kind of questions. Uh, I think the other sort of darker side is that uh, uh, with the greater powers that the Parliament has got come uh, a greater desire to exercise oversight over what we do and how we do it. Um, it is a, a curiosity that we should be meeting today on a day when two of the broadsheets should have actually figured the European Parliament on the front page uh, and that the Independent should pull out um, uh, the so-called Galvin reports relating to the uh, uh, expenses of members. Now. Um, as a matter of fact, I think this is completely old hat news and that it's about a situation which doesn't exist anymore, uh, whereby the whole system for members' assistance has been completely changed. But the fact of the matter is that we are, because we've got more powers, we're subject to greater scrutiny and the risks are higher for members. Uh, I just refer to the Sunday Times uh, little escapade earlier this year where they interviewed 60 members to see how many of them would accept money in exchange for introducing certain amendments. Thank God, from the point of view of my office, that none of them were British who did. Uh, that four of them, uh, that all of them were either Romanian uh, or Spanish, or uh, I forget who the others were, but I didn't really care from my present vantage point inside the office. Thank heavens none of them were British, otherwise I think I could have probably closed the office, lowered the flag and walked home. Uh, but the fact is that 
This was something that I had... I'm surprised only four took the money. Uh, (laughs) That was you saying that, not me. Uh, But I I just think it was something that would not have happened before. But people are conscious that the amendments that the Parliament adopts now are significant. They do play a big role. I'm not saying they didn't play a big role before, but the scope in which they are applied is so large that we have to have a system which is more acceptable than the one we've got at the moment. Dare I say it, that the efforts to improve transparency, I think, require uh, perhaps uh, another look at the Financial Register of Interests, a very fine document, but one which actually imposes no obligations on any member as to whether what they put in there is truthful or not, uh, or is complete or not. Uh, And when people say to us, uh, well, that's not a complete record, I've just seen a member's, we've just had a complaint about a member uh, in Brussels, uh, about a British member actually, saying this Register of Interests is not complete. The answer is, it's up to the member what they put in. We do not control it in any way. I'm not sure how sustainable that is in the longer term. I think the last thing I would say is that uh, many things have changed over the uh, over the 20 years that we've been writing this book, or indeed over the 30 years that I have been um, drawing, I was going to say the Queen's shilling, or whatever we call it, anyway, the EU sal- my EU salary. But one thing that hasn't changed is that... Uh, I think the notion of the legitimacy of the institution and its acceptability uh, within the political framework of the EU has not advanced as much as it could have done. Indeed, one could argue it's not advanced very far at all. Uh, I, I actually feel that the degree to which knowledge of the Parliament has increased is rather poor uh, in many member states, not just, the, not just in Britain, and that the readiness to accept it as being part of the polit- normal political furniture of the member states is quite small. Uh, and that, uh, I, I mean, let, let me go back to the question of the SWIFT agreement. The SWIFT agreement was interesting for the, a number of reasons, and one reason it was very interesting was that uh, I thought the Americans understood the European Parliament than anybody in Europe. Uh, when the Americans heard that the European Parliament was threatening to vote down an agreement voted by 27 member states and the Commission, uh, Hillary Clinton rang up Mr. Buzek and said, what the hell's going on? Uh, you know, you shouldn't do this. And when we had actually done it, they had the bright idea of sending uh, Mr. Joe Biden, Vice President, to make a speech in the Parliament and say, look, we're not so bad on human rights over there. You, you know, your, your human rights are safe in my hands. Uh, and lo and behold, we did vote the second time around a slightly revised agreement. What was striking to me was, though, that um, uh, the German government, for example, said, what on earth is going on in the European Parliament? What are all my Christian Democrat uh, MEPs uh, doing voting against this agreement, said Mrs. Merkel? Uh, Because I think she didn't accept the notion of this Parliament as being something that has a certain separateness and which is... It's legitimate to behave in that particular way. There's always this thought that, well, actually these members are there to perform in the way that their governments and their governing parties want them to. And I always told that during the many years of the Labour rule, I, I always was telling them, look, you can't, you Labour government cannot tell Stephen Hughes, Labour MEP in the North East, how to vote on the Working Time Directive. He's just not going to vote the way the government wants you to vote, because we're organised differently here. But this was never accepted 
Uh, and in the same way, today's Guardian report shows that people can't accept the notion that Mr. Callanan thinks we should not vote for tightening uh, emissions, uh, uh, the emissions targets, uh, carbon emission targets, and uh, somehow thinks that this is uh, abnormal. Well, actually, that's the way the European Parliament and the EU system operates. So for me, uh, there's a sense in which the Parliament has moved on, but attitudes towards it, both in government and in the wider populace, have not changed adequately. So that's the project for my retirement. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much, Michael. David, on that note. Well, I was working for the Financial Times in uh, Brussels and Paris and thought that doing something about Europe was the job of my generation. And so I stood for the European Parliament. I had spent all my journalistic career writing about finance, business and industry, so I was immediately made spokesman for agriculture in a conservative group. And I didn't know one end of a cow from another. My major discovery was it didn't matter, because agricultural <laughs> politics is somewhat removed from agriculture. Um, I then, when Henry Plum became the chairman of the parliament, president of the parliament, I became chairman of the Agriculture Committee. Um, all our natural allies voted against us, me, the Socialists voted for me, and my own group split in two. Um, and uh, I then, as you said, took the budget through it. I spent a lot of time in the Council of Ministers, where one thing you learn is that personal friendships and matter. Uh, it's not just an institutional system, but taking the trouble to go to your German colleagues mine of fish exhibition in some ghastly place on the Baltic actually does play dividends. <laughs> and we discovered that the Greek minister had been uh, a graduate at Cambridge a million years ago and had incredible memories. And we brought him over, he spent an idyllic weekend in Cambridge, uh, punting, uh, going to one of the chapels, uh, and the sunshine was blissful, and for the next three years he never cast a vote against us in the Council of Ministers. <laughs> and, uh, one, one shouldn't think of Europe as simply being this sort of realpolitik institution. All sorts of emotions and feelings play in the coming uh, to decisions. When I got to, you said I, I then went to Westminster on the grounds that all the Christians were in Europe and all the lions were still over here. Um, and uh, I became one of only three Conservatives to vote for the Lisbon Treaty. So that my uh, you know, feelings about Europe haven't really uh, changed, despite all Europe's efforts to make them change. Uh, and I remember, indeed, when I was there, writing an article saying that the European Parliament, despite all its efforts to fail, was condemned to succeed. And, and I think, in a sense, that's not a bad formulation. And I would say to Michael, for God's sake, stop worrying about legitimacy. If politicians worry about legitimacy, they're finished. The European Parliament is there, it's in the institutions, it ain't going to go away. Whether people think it's legitimate or not doesn't alter a jot of the effective exercise of its powers, so stop worrying about it. And we know what is never going to improve, it's always going to be boring. It's going to be boring, any institution which depends upon translation and interpretation is going to be boring. I mean, some speeches are massively improved by interpretation, in my view. <laughs> 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 the time is divided up between the groups. Uh, everything is everything is passed out. The key decisions are taken in the groups and in the uh, bureau. And we know that it, European Parliament can't generate sort of strong, charismatic sort of leaders. You know, charisma doesn't doesn't come through a translation uh, uh, process. And of course, it's easily dismissed as wasteful and 
extravagant because it's cover caravanserai which parades around Europe. But it's really quite difficult for somebody coming out of Westminster to level too many charges about that in the present circumstances. I think there are two serious, uh, serious problems, as it were, in relation to the way the public sees it. Uh, one is there is no line of accountability between members of the European Parliament and their public. There isn't because we have, we have, a di we have direct elections, we have a, a, a proportional uh, elections on a regional basis. As far as the Conservatives are concerned, none of them report back to their committees. There isn't a committee to report back to. There isn't a constituency association to report back to. I mean, they might be invited to speak at the constituency AGMs of the Westminster member, where either they're put on as a warm-up act to the Westminster member, or they have five minutes at the end, and please, you know, if you can cut it down to three, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I have Teddy Taylor and I have constituency, so we have sat at opposite ends of the table all the time, for, out of uh, common prudence. But because, because of that, and it's even worse if you've got a national list, if you have a PR under a national list, your party bureau chooses your members of parliament. Let's not pretend that the electorate has anything to do with other than with choosing a handful of people at the sort of you know, blurred points where the votes uh, uh, meet. So that sense of immediate accountability, um, I think, is um, not one which is, uh, you, you can attribute to parliament. Uh, of course, we're going to make the same mistake, but if we ever go down the, the route of having elected members of the House of Lords elected for 15 years and incapable of standing again, we are building in a monstrous non-accountable system in, in the interest, presumably, of improving accountability. The other problem is that, of course, um, nothing is at stake in an election to the European Parliament. You know, people will vote Tory even if they hate the Tories, often because that's what they do, or they vote Liberal, or they vote Labour, because at the end of the day they want to change a bit. They want to see the furniture wagon outside Downing Street, or they don't want to see the furniture wagon. No furniture wagons, other than those shifting the Parliament between its various <coughs> locations, are involved in uh, elections. So, um, we are used in Britain to what you might call a divide and decide system of government. You define what the difference is, and then you choose. And in Europe, and the European Parliament in particular, it is equally condemned to what you might call circle and coalesce. So you sort of circle around the subject to find the consensus, and then you, uh, then you proceed on that basis. But we all tend to judge the European Parliament against national parliaments. But of course you can't, because it's a transnational parliament, and there just isn't any other parliament to compare it to. So it has this misfortune, in a sense, of being sui generis, of standing entirely on its own, which defies some comparisons. And, of course, there's no single taproot of political culture which comes into that parliament. People bring their own baggage. I mean, we are used to a tradition where the, the, the government is drawn out of the parliament, where the prime minister answers questions in the parliament, where he goes to his constituents at weekends and has constituents come to him. Um, and that's generally speaking, that's more the Northern European tradition in France. If you become a minister, you quit being an MP. You cannot be in the French National Assembly and be a member of the government. So there's a complete division between the two. France is a presidential bureaucratic system of government, not a parliamentary system of government. And people come with all their different baggage into the European Parliament. And it takes a long time to develop a shared culture of politics in that sort of uh, institution, and besides which it's also inevitably reflects what you might call the geopolitical positions of the member states. You're partly a national delegation, you're partly an ideological 
delegation. And how the two are shifting is very interesting, and Michael mentioned that in his own, uh, in his own remarks. And while the Parliament is congressional in its broad structure, what it lacks is the powers of the United States Congress in terms of the immense power of the budgetary chairman. I mean, the United States is a chairmanocracy erected into a political system because it's all based on seniority or committee chairmanships in the United States. But they endow huge legislative powers to the chairman of the committees and significant powers to backbench members of Congress as well. But despite all this, as Michael's pointed out, there has been a steady accumulation of powers by the European Parliament, uh, however unglamorous it has been, and whereas it's very difficult to make consultation and co-decision making sound sexy, nonetheless, in that nitty-gritty of negotiations, it is an extremely important uh, power. And also, national parliaments can't do the job. The idea that a national parliament can do the job of scrutinising European legislation is farcical. We have uh, the European Scrutiny Committee in Westminster, manned by all the usual suspects, um, and they don't do a good job at all. They, don't, they, 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 they grumble and they chunter, but the outcome is very little. And interestingly enough, since, since the last election, Westminster the Commons has been able to choose a weekly debate itself. No, not all the timetabling of events has been in the hands of government anymore. But there is actually the ability of the Commons to select its own debate. You just check how often it has selected a debate to do with the European Union as opposed to the European Court of Justice, which has taken it to take it over as the sort of demon in chief of the European Union as far as the British political uh, system is concerned. And it's interesting how little interest um, there is. But equally, it's important to remember that the European Parliament has got a huge role in what I've described, I hope not patronising, is sort of the socialisation of new member states into democratic systems, given the fact that so many of the member states um, are, come from totalitarian backgrounds. Indeed, the last great enlargement of the European Union was the greatest peaceful transfer of power in Europe since the decline of the Western Roman Empire. And it is perhaps worth thinking about that, as some of the achievements of Europe at a time when we were all thinking, God, when on earth are they ever going to manage to do anything sensible? So where are we heading? Well, we've seen the growing role of Parliament, and I think the big, the big, the open question now is: Is Europe heading more in an intergovernmental direction? If you look at some of the member states, their preference is clearly to go down that route. Yeah. Now, the UK has always had a preference to go down that route. I think the French, despite all their abeisances towards you know, the European concept, also have an instinct to go down that route. And as a more Chancellor Merkel and the Germans become rather sensitive to their opinion at home, they also find that that route might be one in which they're more inclined. And that's particularly so, since the European Union has been so invisible in the big international uh, issues. I mean, perhaps inevitably so. But I, I have to say that the current crop of European leaders, I mean, I, mean, I know charisma is a big word, but it's difficult to find anything more negative than the charisma of a, of a, you know, of a trio at the top of the institutions at home by which I'm including the lady whose name I've forgotten, who's in charge of foreign policy. <laughs> also, the sovereign debt issue, I think, has placed a focus clearly on national uh, roles and the need to play to the national audience. And it's difficult, I think, to see an enhanced European Parliament role in any outcome concerning the Euro. Indeed, I think it's difficult to see any politi sensible political solution 
to the issues which have been brought to the fore by the euro. By, by the euro. I know there's talk about the, the, the euro is a currency in search of a government. We must supply it with a government. There must be treaty changes. I mean, grow up, you know, get real. Look around Europe and see what's happening. What's happening in Europe is actually the, the breakdown of the old uh, polarization of parties. And you've got, if you look in, in the United Kingdom, we've got the UKIP and the BMP, we know UKIP are the country cousins of the BMP, as far as I'm uh, concerned. You've got the National Front in France, which is trying to move towards the centre and is trying to sort of humanise its, de-demonise itself. Uh, you've got the, the patriotic Finns in Finland. You've got Wilders Party in, in Holland. So the whole, the, the polarity of European politics actually breaking down the idea that you're going to find a quote your word legitimacy for more institutional changes and advances in, my, in that context seems to me to be absolutely uh, farcical. You know, the euro has got to be solved by financial and economic means. It's not going to be solved by saying underlying it there's a political problem. We solve a political problem that eventually we can tackle the problems of the euro in the future. I mean, it may be true, but it's not going to, to happen. Now, do the member states want to move to more central authority to control the, uh, the discipline in the, the euro, which is obviously something the Germans would like? Um, where will the power lie? Who will adjudicate on the mechanisms of financial, uh, fiscal responsibility and public spending discipline? Um, it's difficult to see how that is going to be done other than within the nexus of the uh, council or the council's own bodies. Nonetheless, I think there's a huge role for the European Parliament if it will look beyond the horizon. I mean, the great, the great problem of Europe is it has been so used to looking at its own navel, decade after decade, for concerning itself with institutional development, you know, the, the relationship between the institutions. And you can understand that because its creation was an extraordinary achievement. You've only got to look back at how recently, you know, the, the shape of Europe, just two generations ago, but now I think it's about time that it started to look beyond <coughs> that and address some of the global issues and see itself in the, in the context of global politics. Now, competitiveness, India, China, the BRICS, we all know where those issues are going to lie. We perhaps haven't come to terms with quite how insignificant Europe is becoming, you know, looked, at from the out, looked at from outer space. Dealing with Russia. I mean, Russia is still a country, I think, on the cusp of between one political system and another, with huge nationality and frontier problems still practically all around it. And yet every member, every, every leader wants to go and spend their weekend in Madatcha with, if they can work out who they want to spend it with, because that's rather difficult now between Mendeleev and, and, uh, and Putin. Whereas if ever was a case for some more united approaches with Russia, and that huge bundle of issues to do with population growth, food supplies, conflict over resources, including water resources, the fate of the developing world, the, the, the fears of migration which climate change might push, all those issues are now pressing upon, pressing. And they're issues which actually preoccupy you know, the ordinary people, in a sense, much more than the institutional problem. So if the European part, this, this initiative is not going to come from the member states, and it's not going to come from a commission. But it does need, from, it does need, need to come from an organisation which says it can reflect public opinion more, and which can actually draw attention to it. And I think a role for the European Parliament is actually to stand up and blow the trumpet for an outward-looking Europe which is relevant 
to the world and say we have our internal problems to solve, but they should not be addressed at the expense of that much wider issue of quite what we're going to look like from outer space one generation from now. Thank you very much. So not an institutional agenda, a political agenda for the European Parliament. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I send Richard's regards from Brussels, who I just met recently, uh, who I know a bit. I also know Francis, who's as charming, intelligent as a Renaissance man you will ever find. So <laughs> we're very happy, very happy that he's in Ireland. Um, I'll, uh, I'm conscious that there are people in the audience with a hell of a lot more experience than I, so I'll try and be as brief as possible. But I, I live in Brussels, and uh, I, I heard that the, I, also the European Parliament is not an area of huge expertise of mine until a few, 18 months ago when it became very important to be an expert on the Parliament. Um, and I heard it was a place of great corruption. So I, I hung out there for about 10 months hoping to get corrupted and uh, nothing has happened yet. So all I can say from my personal experience is I have seen nothing. Also, my best friend took the uh, case to uh, the European Court of Justice on the Galvin Report, Kieran Toland, who's an Irish barrister. So we have, we have him to blame for that. Um, I have a few reflections on the Parliament, not particularly well structured. I mean, people who don't like it will just say it's an NGO or a student's union. It's, it's, it's completely, you know, it's one of these places where people go to sound off and, and you know, they're in no way connected to the priorities of national politics. And there is, <coughs> there is some justice some of the time to that. If you look at the debates over austerity, for example, uh, if you want to go on the BBC website and uh, look up Kiefer Hofstadt takes on the UK, uh, you would see the leader of the Liberal Party with the leader of the leaders of the other groups, that's uh, Martin Schulz, the leader of the Socialists, Joseph Dahl from the EPP uh, and the others, uh, including a very nice man called Jerzy Buzek, who's the president of the parliament, a very decent person, having a one long Brit bashing session over the, about the UK over something that's called the Sure Report, which is the parliament's proposals for increasing the, the EU's budget, therefore its own budget. Uh, now, this sort of disconnection in which just, if you look at the video, it's, it's a lot of foaming at the mouth, eyes rolling in the, uh, in the sockets, if, you know, Britain could save so much money if it would just join the euro, is one of the arguments, and Britain could save even more money if it got serious about European foreign policy, it could lay off 10,000 diplomats or whatever the... Uh, and, and I just see no maturity in that debate, but they just loved it, you know, they were, they were hitting the desks. It was a chamber of horrors, really, and it, I became very, very worried when I saw this debate, because I, I, it's not that I have respect for the Parliament in some ways, which I am now about to outline. I'm a justice and home affairs expert, which until recently was a wonderfully wonky, geeky area that nobody bothered you very much about, <laughs> and now everybody is interested in it and I have to try and explain it, and I don't always succeed very well. But SWIFT is indeed, as Michael said, a great example of suddenly the world waking up and saying, hold on, these guys have power now, and it's not, guess what, guess what happens when you give somebody power? They use it. They, they really use it. Uh, so you can't be, you know, it was almost a childish reaction from the council that the parliament decided Look, this SWIFT thing just doesn't add up. And I do a lot of work on security and would be, in most cases, sympathetic to a lot of transatlantic cooperation on things like terrorism. But the SWIFT case is really interesting from several points of view, and it shows this is more than just either the Parliament's crap or it's not crap. Uh, with the, SWIFT, the SWIFT agreement is very interesting. It involved the, the bulk transfer of financial data to the US authorities. Now, if you know anything about history, there used to be a thing in the 1980s called Star Wars, which Ronald Reagan developed uh, to, to either scare the Russians or he actually believed that it would work. But it was a technological flaw 
a technological fraud which was never achieved, spent huge amounts of money and swelled the US's military budget. Now, after September 11th, something very similar happened in Homeland Security. Some legitimate work was done to improve security in the United States, which was uh, necessary and warranted. However, there was, if you look at a, a report on the internet called Top Secret America, done by the Washington Post last year, you can see that the Homeland Security Complex now sort of makes the military security complex you know, look like a dwarf in comparison, where you have got thousands of consultancies, you know, private operators operating government intelligence databases and so on. So even security guys like me were looking at what the parliament doing and said, these guys know nothing about security, this is stupid, they're just doing it because they're anti-American. It's a knee-jerk anti-American reaction. But even though that was true, uh, even though they didn't really care about my civil liberties, it was their own pursuit of power which actually made me a little bit more free. And uh, that is what parliaments do. Parliaments any parliament worth the name fights over two things, the extension of its prerogatives and control over money. The British parliament here, the entire history of British liberty is probably, you know, it's, it's down to that struggle between controlling absolute power over the issue of money. And that's why I believe that the fundamental future of the parliament will be decided over this budget issue that we're about to go into, which will be the most horrendous battle, in, uh, it, I think, in the whole European Union's history. It will make a treat, trying to ratify a treaty, you know, look like you know, a picnic. And there was, there was a chap once called John Pym, who many of the people here who have intimate uh, knowledge of, of, of British parliamentary history know was a radical, who in the end ended up uh, being responsible for Charles I's head getting chopped off, and the clear prerogative of parliament being established for all time in Britain. Now, there's also a man called Martin Schultz, and Martin Schultz, <laughs> Martin Schultz is the quite abrasive head of the socialist group and he is just about to take over in the usual arrangement, which I'm not too crazy about, that the EPP and the socialists share the presidency of the European Parliament. I personally believe that when voters go to the polls they should have a right to determine who that person is for five years, but anyway, that's minor. Um, so I'm wondering, is given the battle we're about to have, given this, this, this foaming at the mouth I saw on the BBC website, given the, you know, unstoppable force meets whatever uh, dynamic that's happening here, immovable object. Uh, I'm a, I wonder if Martin Schulz might be a, make a play to be the John Pym of the European Union, in the sense that, in the sense that, hold on, in the sense that, uh, stay with me, uh, in, in the sense that I believe that this budget debate is going to be pretty much almost unsolvable. And if you remember, John Pym was the key actor in a parliament called the Long Parliament. And under under the uh, the rules of the European Union, if the Parliament can't if the EU can't agree a budget, the the budget just rolls over. Um, uh, I believe on a month to month basis, but I could be corrected by the more learned people in the audience. The so called provisional twelfths, and I just I can't help seeing this delicious historical analogy where you've got John you've got sort of a John Pym like character because Mark Schulz is not afraid to hurt people's feelings. Uh, uh, and you've got this sense with the European Union can't agree a budget and the money just sort of rolls over in this political interregnum, uh, which will no doubt think tankers like me will come up for another, with another clever term for when it happens. Um, but anyway, that's something that we can discuss. A smaller, a smaller uh, point on the good things the Parliament does, okay? Uh, you know, the European, th there is this element sometimes amongst pro-Europeans to push power away from us because We'd rather be governed by strangers than by ourselves. You know, not not in every country, in some countries. This is di a dynamic you see in Italy or Belgium, which have a lot of their own governance problems, and they see a federal solution as something that could help out with that. Um, 
I think that in some cases that's not 100% wrong when it comes to the European Parliament, either because it's a maturing organisation and it's been slowly coming into its own, or they're just mad enough not to care about, and because of this, this uh, you know, not exactly direct connection between what they do in the Parliament and their chances of re-election. I'll give you a few examples. Number one was, for example, SWIFT, which, if there had been sort of a major terrorist attack or something like that, could have back backfired badly on them, but they were courageous and they're keeping up the pressure on the Americans. Fundamentally, I believe eventually the Americans will have to take a look at their own bloated system and rationalize it for the constitutional freedoms that America is supposed to stand for. That doesn't mean getting rid of intelligence sharing. That doesn't mean getting rid of completely appropriate, stepped up uh, border security, etc. It does mean rolling back a peace dividend that I think is now justified. Uh, you, you can't have 100% scanning of containers going across the border. It's extremely bad for the economy. It's also not practical. Uh, you can't have this big bloated superstructure that nobody is actually sure what's going on. Believe you me, I see it all, I see it every day in Brussels. So the Americans don't need it either. But if uh, it's an open question whether or not anything we do can make that change happen, but that change does have to happen. Secondly, on Schengen. So the EU's area of passport-free travel. Uh, I was amazed by how the arrival of 20,000 uh, Tunisian migrants to the island of Lampedusa could suddenly trigger off a debate over what arguably to me is the only thing that the EU sort of does that people can really appreciate every day uh, that benefits 400 million citizens and 10 million legitimate travellers every year. And yet a very minor hyped up, because uh, there's no greater, no more emotive issue than immigration and politics. Uh, suddenly we were on the verge of rewriting the rules for the Schengen area, in my view completely unnecessarily. Uh, for a number of reasons which we could talk about, uh, I believe Schengen is absolutely completely safe and everything that has been happening is just political theatre, rather depressingly so, uh, between the Danes, the French and the Italians. But any changes to Schengen really have to be passed through the European Parliament and the fact that they happen to not care too much about being popular is a good thing in this sense. They're sort of a house of lords, if you know what I mean. They, they're, they're, they're there to... to try and be a little bit wiser than the people operating under the pressures of everyday politics. I know that there's a strange paradox in that, even though it's a parliament. Uh, but the, the, the uh, I'm just saying I've lost myself here a bit. Uh, the, other, the other area was hedge fund regulation, which, you know, hedge funds didn't cause the financial crisis. It was caused by more complicated factors elsewhere in financial services. Uh, but there was a reaction against, you know, the, the, the solution, of course, a bit like the euro crisis, and the solution is to do something else somewhere else. Um, and the, 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 the parliament improved the legislation on hedge fund regulations. It made it, it, made it better, it made it fairer. So the, the, the closed shops of the commission and the council, they can often be dysfunctional. They're not always. Most of the time they work well. But, for example, the commission uh, often... Uh, commissions research to support its legislative proposals. Not all of that research is very good. However, the Parliament has made a big effort to, to and I think really trying to copy the, the very fine example of the House of Lords, which has turned itself into a really a sort of, uh, you know, a base of intellectual excellence that helps shape thinking, here, not just in the UK, but around Europe. Well, I have to say, I'm rather impressed with the Parliament's effort to copy the House of Lords. Because a lot of these reports that they're constantly pumping out are of quite good value. And I, I see a lot of bad research from day to day. Sometimes I'm actively involved. But this is good stuff. It's genuinely, it, it, 
comes up to standard. So well, at least somebody's reading it. <laughs> Believe you me, I'd rather not have to, but uh, that's the case. But anyway, I, I, I'd like to I'd like to sort of wrap up uh, there just by uh, by talking a little bit about JJ in particular. <coughs> and it's not true to say that the Parliament will will always be dealing with issues that nobody notices. For example, at the moment, the Parliament is discussing something called the Seasonal Workers Directive. Now, Seasonal Workers Directive is a euphemism for un giving unskilled workers legal rights in Europe. And just at the moment, that is a very difficult, touchy subject. And it's, it's really interesting to see that the parliamentarians aren't just voting this through because it's great. There's, a, there's an emotional debate, uh, there's a genuine political divergence between the parliamentarians on what sort of access we should be giving, <coughs> what sort of rights we should be giving to newcomers just at this present moment. So I see, you know, I mean, first of all, I'm in favour of the Seasonal Workers Directive. I think it's necessary. but. It's, a, it's an example of how the Parliament is not just going to give you this federalist, more power for the Parliament answer. I mean, there's genuine political debate going on there. And I think in time, you know, political discussion in the Parliament will become nuanced. But I think there will never, ever, ever be a day when you and I walk on the street and say, you know, stop someone and say, can I just tell you something? I just love the European Parliament, you know. I, 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 I just can't say enough good things about them. And I'll tell you why. Because there's never been a day I've said that about a national parliament. So, you know, this, that's not their modus operandi. And funnily enough, I am really enthusiastic about their, no matter how badly they do it, they're still holding the commission to account much better. Sometimes the commission's done dysfunctional things. I've seen it with my own two eyes, things, legislation that we would have been better off without. Uh, and the Parliament does bring that out because of the need to report to it. Uh, and the Council also does some strange things. Uh, you know, and the Parliament's role in accountability, no matter how badly it does it, is, is valuable. And actually, we can't do without it now, especially after Lisbon. Okay, thanks. Sarah, what would you like to add? Well, there's uh, only very few points to add because a lot have already been said. Um, so I will keep it very brief. But um, I would like to sort of highlight a couple of things that I think um, the book does uh, point to, but perhaps there are aspects not uh, completely covered with regard to the fact that for many, especially for political scientists, um, the European Parliament is a bit of a laboratory because things happen very fast. We see all the changes both in content in terms of organization and how the work processes uh, develop. And um, some things that are included in the book but per that we perhaps haven't addressed so much is that the European Parliament um, finding its feet after the enlargement, after Lisbon, is um, having to come to terms with a very new reality. But the same goes for, for the governments, obviously. And um, some interesting aspects here is that um, the committee work that we see in the European Parliament is having a more pronounced um, profile in the work and we see that this ends up being a bit of the legitimacy that the Parliament can also play on in terms of having increased expertise in the, in the legislative um, debates and in the uh, um, development of, legislat uh, of legislation as such. And I think that um, that's something that, first of all, the Commission needs to keep an eye on because um, it can make good use of this, but it's also um, changing the institutional balance, not just between the Council and the European Parliament, but we do have the Commission playing a different role in this um, interface between the two 
by camel institutions, if you want. And I think that that's a very recent and uh, uh, dynamic that will be strengthened in the next years, especially as we see more and more of the important um, legislation coming uh, to the table and with the European Parliament wanting to play to, 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 the, to, to the powers that they've been given. Um, so I expect that development uh, to, uh, first of all, be very interesting at the EU level, but also we are seeing that uh, uh, some of these points are also taken to the debates in the, at the national level. Um, committee systems in Europe uh, are developing, and uh, it's interesting how the European Parliament is certainly an example, um, perhaps looking to the US, but where this... Um, uh, legitimacy and expertise development is extremely important and so hopefully the European Parliament um, both in the last uh, half of the term currently but also in the next uh, terms will, will see how to play to its own strengths with um, a continuous uh, development of the committee work. That said, we, I know that Michael has in other, uh, at other points also shown a great hesitation about how the European Parliament deals with its increased powers after Lisbon and how the Council uh, and the Parliament as co-legislators um, play together now. Uh, we are seeing a reverse of the um, ideas that everything had to be solved at first readings. We are, there is a great transparency problem, there's a great accountability problem, and the, the European Parliament has its main cards in being the watchdog, if you want, of the decisions. So it cannot get trapped in this sort of efficiency for every um, legislation um, rhetoric that the governments and the administrations in the EU have been been, been playing at. So um, I, I hope and I think that this is something that will probably um, uh, go back to, to a, a more developed process of European Parliament having the right to debate having the right to amend and include uh, new positions in legislation, but that this is, is it will be done in a transparent manner. Um, and then I just wanted to make a couple of points uh, from the, not me personally, but uh, with view to the institution that cannot be named, as you said, um, <laughs> which is that a couple of curious uh, things have happened in the way that the Council deals with the Parliament, um, most notably that um, we've seen uh, also in important pieces of legislation, for example, fishing quotas, that uh, individual governments could not get their um, positions through in the council. So what do they do now? They go to the parliament and they go to the committee because that is where the expertise is, that's where the power lies in getting a, a sufficient majority in, in the parliament and to actually get things included in the in the. Uh, uh, in the legislation. So whereas I see the council having quite a few challenges in getting coherent legislation through that is not necessarily to the lowest common denominator, we see a parliament that is trying to work on, um, and now maybe exaggerating a bit, but on content where there is an uh, uh, ability of committees to actually have the proper time to, to go through the positions and include 
concerns either of individual member states or of um, uh, groups in society, etc. So I do think that this whole thing of an institutional uh, power struggle um, is at times very correct, and we do see the parliament still um, making its profile in that power struggle, but at the same time, the parliament Parliament's increased powers has also opened up the possibility for coalitions and for working dynamics within the institutions going across uh, the, the divide. So again, seen from a political science perspective, um, this is very interesting developments um, that are becoming very explicit at the EU level. We have examples from that happen happening at national level as well. But I expect that the debate on the parliament um, in each of the policy areas is not going to be um, with the focus on the parliament as an institution any longer. It's going to be on its expertise within each of the policy areas and how uh, that plays into the overall legislative process together with the with the council in a much more dynamic way than the two black boxes we've uh, previously had set up. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, let's open this up. We've got about 25 minutes for questions. We'll take a few questions and say who you are, please, at the front here. Uh, John Palmer, uh, David and I go back to these pre-parliamentary days when we were covering the old pointed parliament in Luxembourg pinch oneself uh, when you compare what we're talking about this evening with what the reality was then. I just want to sort of make a couple of very quick remarks and invite uh, panel to uh, react or shoot them down or however they wish. And it is the ideological point that Michael made at the beginning. But by the way, it is true that governments wish to become ever more intergovernmental in the way they run the European Union. The only trouble is it doesn't really work very well, and they find, and JHA is one area, there are others there, to a greater or lesser extent, they go down eventually, having tried everything else, the route of the community method. So the process of integration, notwithstanding the undoubted political problems at home in all the member states, is something that's continuing. It will be fascinating to see what emerges out of this Euro crisis at the end of the day, when they decide what the long-term arrangements for the governments of an economic as well as a monetary union will be, and I think that will further enhance the parliament. One point that, in terms of this ideological divide, that I think hasn't received the attention it should do, is the phenomenon, which never existed in the early years of the elected parliament, where the national political cycles and the European political cycles are coming into thus becoming synchronized with each other. There used to be a time when social democrats were up, centre-right was down, and vice versa, and so on. It was a, it was a complete hodgepodge. Now, we have seen, uh, after the period of social democratic um, domination, or great majority, the centre-right is now an overwhelming majority, and social democratic parties and green parties are more and more comporting themselves as oppositions at the European level as well as at the national level. And I think this is got huge importance for the future. So I guess my question is, I'd like to know how people react to uh, Michael's observation on the ideological character of the divisions uh, and whether uh, uh, we're not going to see a great deal more of that, especially as more and more issues come to decision-making in ways that directly involve the parliament. That's a process, I guess, that's going to continue. 
Thanks. Just behind you. Yes, Michael Elliott. Um, I was MEP for West London from 84 to 99, 15 years. Uh, I wanted for, just to pick up on something that David Curry was saying, because um, I think that um, uh, I always felt uh, two things as I came and I became an MEP. One was that um, though the Parliament in those days had very limited powers, I felt I had a lot of scope and autonomy of action as an individual member, far more than an opposition backbench member in the House of Commons, for example. And um, that really was an interesting uh, picture at that time. Also, coming <coughs> from a local government background, I felt that the Parliament terribly familiar. It worked like a large British local authority. Uh, used to work, not as it does now, sadly, uh, with um, cabinets and scrutiny and so on, but as local government once did it work. But um, the real uh, coup de grace, I think, for um, uh, the accountability and uh, um, awareness of, by the public of MEPs was the change in the voting system. We, it was a tragedy that we abandoned individual constituencies. And I don't mean we shouldn't have gone to PR. I think we had to. But we, if we'd adopted a top-up system, uh, like we use in the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, that would have enabled individual members still to have an accountability to the geographical areas that they represented. So that's a good <coughs> comment. Uh, two very quick little questions, if I may. First of all, how do you feel uh, the co-decision procedures are now working? I was very much involved in one of the very first on the Socrates education program. And I found it very difficult because um, uh, member, the Council of Ministers was not represented very often, on rare occasions only, by ministers, even the most junior, but by intergovernmental mm -hmm. officials, who uh, government Corey officials who had endless time at their disposal and uh, support. And as a member of the Parliament, with accountability to my constituents and other commitments, I found it very, very difficult to work in, in that kind of situation. Maybe it's improved, I'd like to know. And the final point was, Excellent. another thing that was beginning to be done in my last year or two in the Parliament, and I was involved with it on behalf of the Education, Youth and Culture Committee, was to try and involve, uh, get more of a close relationship with national MPs. We organised a number of joint uh, meetings where national MPs came along and joined, uh, joined us. Um, I, I think that's a very positive move, and I wonder if you feel that has improved and what more can be done to improve it. Because I don't think national parliaments and the European Parliament should feel that they're somehow in conflict, opposed to each other. They are both all elected people, and they should be working more closely together um, to challenge the executive. Um, but um, one of the problems we had in getting national MPs over, certainly from Britain, was that um, they couldn't get the money to come. And I used to jokingly say, this wonderful, all-powerful House of Commons, and it can't even afford to send uh, one or two of its members over to Brussels for a couple of days, you know. I've got, a, although they're big questions, I've got a lot of hands here. There's the first one here. Claudia Hamill, wondered whether, Michael, you would care to elaborate a bit more on your thoughts on the inter-institutional inter agreement Ooh. and um, the difficulties you see. I'm slightly surprised and amused to find you taking the, the possibly the uh, council side on this one. Could you just give us a bit more detail? Perhaps others along the panel could say what they think about the whole concept of inter-institutional agreements and whether you think 
And then final yes, one before we... John Roper, um, I'm tempted to say something about relations between national parliaments and the European Parliament, which is not always easy, but which we work at. Um, can I... I share the House of Lords European Union to me. Could I um, first raise something which Sarah said about trilogues and the ordinary legislative procedure and transparency? It's actually not very transparent, no. and particularly for national parliaments who are trying to hold their own governments to account. I know, for example, that the advisor to the, uh, the Danish Parliament's Market Committee said, well, there's no point your mandating the minister anymore. The person you now have to mandate is the deputy permanent representative of the country which holds the presidency. Well, and you can't get hold of the document. Well, you can in Denmark. But in other countries, the countries take a rather dim view of making limited documents available to national parliaments. That doesn't apply in Denmark, it does elsewhere. So I would be interested in what you think about transparency. And then I want to come to one other point, and that was this question um, which I think Hugo made about, one way, about um, the great, no, you made sorry, sorry, the growing role of committees, and I'm sure that's right, and rapporteurs. But there's a, and there is a problem about this, mm -hmm. because it means that people become more and more specialists, and they know about one particular thing and a great deal of, about it. They don't necessarily know very much horizontally about other parts of the totality of Europe. And this sometimes, in trying to talk to them, some of us find complicated. All right, let's quick responses, because there's quite a few I want to come back. But any, anything you want to say in response to those questions, Michael? Yeah. Uh, on the ideological point, I think uh, one of those things that a lot of us are really interested to see how it works out is the extent to which this ideological point can be played out in the next European elections. Because I think one of the most interesting things is that all of the political parties at European level, well, the most significant ones, have agreed that they will nominate a candidate for President of the European Commission in advance of the elections that something which the socialists uh, in very controversially declined to do back in December 2008 uh, but now have committed themselves to do. So we open up the possibility of quite an interesting issue of trying to make the, the outcome of the European election something that does have some kind of bearing. Ironically, not about the composition of the European Parliament but about who is going to be uh, the President of the European Commission. Uh, and uh, well, uh, Simon, of course, uh, those of you, all of you who have been his students will have read uh, uh, What's Wrong with the European Union and How to Fix It and the famous uh, appendix, uh, <laughs> the annex that I recommend everybody to read. Uh, I, I know you wanted Margot to win in, last, in 2009 and she didn't make it, but, but the whole point is I thought it's, I've always pointed to people as being something which uh, is, opens the possibility for a much clearer kind of ideological debate between different views as to what the Commission after 2014 could actually do. Uh, and for me that, uh, that is a, a very interesting development. So I, well, I couldn't agree more with what you were saying, but I was just an illustration of that. That, that was one thing. Uh, secondly, I was asked to provide more details on my views on inter-institutional agreements. Well, 
Look, uh, I was not trying to make a general argument. I was simply trying to say that the framework agreement between the Parliament and the Commission was one which, when I looked at it, uh, didn't frankly impress me a great deal. I was not trying to argue that interinstitutional agreements cannot be a useful thing. Uh, by the way, we've just got a framework. Uh, we've got an agreement between the Parliament and the, and the Commission on the transparency register that was signed today in, in Brussels. Uh, and I am certain that the, the Council and, uh, and the Parliament may very well sign such agreements in future. So I was only trying to make a particular argument, not against them in general. Oh, more specific, yeah, what, what annoys you about the agreement? Oh, what annoys me about the agreement? It's totally pointless. It's completely and utterly pointless. It's a complete paragraph. It, 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 well, it is not necessary for a Parliament that is trusting in its own abilities to need to write down what it's going to do. It's this kind of rather continental view that you have to specify on paper what your powers are, whereas I was always of the view that you don't actually write these things down, you just do it. And if you want, as a Parliament, to make sure that you have an adequate presence in international negotiations, one of the sort of vex points, you damn well go out there and put pressure on, and you would have uh, plenty of good civil so it's a sign of insecurity. Uh, uh, exactly, exactly. I think you ask people like me to go around and make trouble and make sure that it can happen. We were very good at writing things, you know, and put the pilot of the commission uh, and the council on the spot. So I think it's completely pointless. Uh, the transparency agreement is totally different. Uh, I would just say on the question of relations with the, uh, Michael Elliott made the point about uh, um, the question of Socrates and co-decision. The one of the things that I uh, I learned from the these negotiations that actually for one of the reasons why the council wants agreements at first reading is because it's fearful of the longer that the negotiations go on that we can outwit them and people like me spent a lot of time making sure we could outwit them because every time every six months the presidency changed they changed we stayed the same it was the same people in the secretariat with three vice presidents dealing with conciliation or in the committees with the particular people the rapporteurs who are indeed our specialists who we together that were able to take on uh, the the council quite successfully, and I sat through eighty co-decision procedures, uh, and I don't think we did too badly. I'm, I'm not claiming because of me, you know. I think m it took a, a question of members, good members who were specialists. It was the fact that they did know the stuff. Dagmar wrote Baron knew her stuff on cosmetics. You know, people knew what they were doing, and we could. You know, I was not an expert on the area, but I was kind of an expert on the procedure. I thought we could <coughs> deal with them. So uh, I totally agree, however, that the first reading issue is a big issue. I didn't raise it because I've written about it and kind of bore people with it. But you know, I, I totally agree with you, and I'm interested to see whether this. You know, we haven't actually yet made an agreement on the famous six-pack on the, the economic governance. We're close, maybe we'll get it. But you know, I think the desire to d discuss longer is much better from the Parliament's point of view. Uh, sorry, that was too long. Do I add anything? Uh, yeah, ideological divisions. You know, yes, I'd like to see much more ideological division. Of course, the dreaded de Hunt militates against it. <laughs> but you know, I'd like to see more ideological division in British politics as well. Look at look at the turnout over the last sequence of elections. Look at the rise of minority parties. It's because people are saying there's not much difference between them. Mm. And on the whole, I like politics where there's a choice uh, to be made. The backbench role, Michael, I absolutely agree. I mean, the worst fate in the universe at the moment must be a backbench Liberal Democrat MP here. <laughs> you know, not in government. And can you imagine a fate worse than death than that at the moment? But you can do more in the open. 
uh, uh, Parliament. Um, uh, the constituencies, I agree, um, but you know, even with, you know, I, I was like you at a time when you had your own individual constituency, I once tried to hold a surgery, absolutely nobody turned up at all. Um, I wish that had been the case more often in Westminster, I have to say, that your, that your interlocutors were much more institutional and are very much educational. And, and that, that didn't matter at all. Um, the relationship with MPs and MEPs, I mean, just try Westminster. Because the BMP was elected to the European Parliament, Westminster withdrew the facilities. The House of Commons. Westminster withdrew the facilities for MEPs to go into Westminster in case you know, members of a BMP turned up. Um, and, and, no, but I'm serious. I mean, I'm absolutely serious. And all, all House of Commons members have got an allowance to be able to go to one of the European centres. I think you know, about three times a year or something like that. It is a totally underused allowance because they don't go. And if they do go, there's a risk of being called back uh, by their whips. The most sensible thing is that the select committees much more systematically go to Brussels because of you know, so much legislation uh, originates um, yep. there. Well, do you yeah, know? Expertise, yes, but I mean, the trouble is not so much that people don't become hugely expert in their subject, they certainly tend to lose sight of the politics. I mean, people, people, you know, they are politicians. That's what trouble being in government is about. You get so committed to your policies, you actually forget but at some stage you've got to be re-elected. It's a terrible pain when you discover that you haven't been re-elected. <laughs> <laughs> Just get rid of elections, you don't need them. Change the electorate. Hugo, do you want to say anything? Oh, also, can you comment a little bit about, about STV in Ireland with the MEPs? Because, you know, my impression is that they seem pretty accountable to their voters in multi-member constituencies. But anyway, that may just be my impression. Well, that's just political culture. Irish politics it has its faults, for sure. But one thing that it does have is a very intense sense that it's really important to be responsive to democratic concerns. As a result, you have you produce politicians who are quite good tactically, but bad strategically, as we, <coughs> as we saw with the recent economic woes. Um, but uh, and that largely, I must say, I'm not an expert on Ireland. Although you know, you inevitably get that tag. Um, I, I've seen in the Parliament that the Irish MEPs continue this. There's this real feeling that all politics is local. That you know, you can sort of. I've often described them as sort of like being the Italians in Westminster. You know, this sort of mix of two you know, systems. But uh, very, very uh, uh, quickly on the just, I think, because it would be beneficial for everyone in the audience, just to have a quick recap on how what's the actual power in the parliament, who's in control. Because this is one of the problems. It's not very intelligible to the outside world. So the EPP, the Conservatives, they have the largest amount of seats, but they also have a breakaway group called the European Conservatives and Reformists, who you will know well have, have, have many British people in it, and uh, they actually now have one uh, MEP more than the Green Party. Now, when they vote against or not with the EPP, they actually split their vote. They split the vote to the right. And uh, now the guys doing vote watch will know this more intimately than me, so just correct me. Uh, the therefore, you've got the socialists and the liberals and the greens and a few others, and the fascists, of course. And um, the, the way it works is, basically, as far as I can see, is that when the EPP is divided or when the right in general is divided, if the socialists, liberals and greens, plus a few others agree, and if the fascists don't turn up, then they can beat the beat the Conservatives who have the most seats. Yeah. And the, the kingmakers, right. if you like, are sort of the Liberals. But they are very confused, as Liberals maybe everywhere are in our own sweet way. Uh, <laughs> we have, they have different views on economics and different views on their social liberalism. So there's, sometimes they're Social Democrats 
uh, <coughs> economic thinking sometimes. They're, they're European liberals in that sense. Uh, uh, on the co-decision uh, side of things, well, let me just talk in a little bit more detail about SWIFT, okay? So I said I was happy enough that the Parliament did what it did, and in the end it was sort of the right thing. Um, but it's not to say that the, co the process was handled well. In fact, the, some of the things the Parliament came up with, were, they were just trying to sum up with things that could, they could get power for. Mm, it's consent. Consent. Uh, oh, was that consent? Yes. Wait, go. Excuse me. Uh, but basically, uh, you know, they, they came up with all these harebrained schemes. Like they weren't interested that much in my civil liberties because this is all to feed an American system called the Terrorist Tracking Finance Program, or Terrorist Finance Tracking Program (TFTP). And their response to that was, "Well, we should have a European TFTP." Now, I don't know if that makes me any more free now to have my finances served <laughs> by the European Parliament or anyone else in Europe. You know, that's that's another issue. Um, so their pursuit of power made me free, and it also, I'm not too worried because the European TFTP is impractical for a number of reasons. Uh, and also they said, well we have to give Europol a role here in, in sort of clearing every single request from the Americans for, for the TFTP. Mm, yes, but Europol's role is rather uh, humble to be honest, and it's, it, but again they, they were trying to give more power to the, to the European structure. So uh, if by giving power to the European structures we can make ourselves freer, that's Maybe not a bad thing. If by giving power to the European structures we make ourselves less free, then that's not a good thing. And that's the sort of metric I now apply. Uh, on the, I just want to say one very quick thing, and don't, uh, please don't get angry with me. Is the, uh, I rarely do. Did you see me flicking through the book there? The figure I was flicking through was for the, the number of people employed in the Parliament Secretariat, which is uh, over 6,000, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, of necessity because of the three seats and all that. Uh, but I just saw today the European Commission has, has announced it's going to join austerity politics by laying off something like you know, 10% of workers. And I was just wondering, is there a similar move afoot in the, in the Parliament? Good question. Sarah, you want No, just one point to what was asked before regarding the trilogues and committees. I think that the broad uh, conclusion there is that um, there's in all debates, both political and research debates, etc., we always have this trade-off between transparency and efficiency, which is <coughs> actually something we're trying to prove with some evidence that that trade-off is not necessarily true. And it's certainly something that the Parliament has had to go through in terms of um, with enlargement, with the Lisbon Treaty and so many more responsibilities, there was such a push from the administrations, etc., especially that um, we needed, they needed to produce and keep up with everything that was presented to, to, to the EP. And so a number of measures were taken in order to secure a fast legislative process. Um, a couple of them came out in the way of trilogues and um, um, the rapporteurs, shadow rapporteurs, etc., having a great deal of power in, in putting the legislation together. And that balance of um, uh, transparency, but not as a trade-off, and efficiency um, has not yet been struck. That's certainly true. Uh, there are some great concerns both internally in the Parliament and uh, for external observers and national parliaments, etc., that they cannot follow exactly how the, the mandate is given to the rapporteurs uh, and how they bring back home whatever they have managed to secure, because the messages are difficult um, to, to rely on in a way. So that does leave rapporteurs with a very 
great amount of power in getting um, majorities in the parliament for something that the, is maybe presented to the parliament as if this is the only thing we can get through with the council and vice versa. That said, I don't think that the parliament has been the greatest loser in this way. I think that the council has. Because with trilogues and early um, agreements, the presidency has had a similar uh, situation where delegations are having to get quick res uh, resolves uh, for legislation. And again, we have rotating presidencies. We have a completely different ball game in the in the in the council with government uh, representatives um, and national politics being played out in a different manner. So um, I do think that these concerns that you that you raise are, are very valid, uh, and they um, are probably developing in the in the next few years as well. But I but I think from the other institution, there's even more concern to have. I'm going to conscious of time. We're going to have a few more questions, and then we'll just have Michael respond. Yeah. I was there in the decade of the 90s, basically, uh, and on the Environment Committee, where our greatest raison d'etre, if you like, apart from increasing uh, environmental legislation, was to um, to push our power. That, that was the, the, the big thing in the 90s. And in, in the Environment Committee, we spent an awful lot of time trying to ensure that the, the uh, that the legislation came through under single market legislation where we had more power than the normal environment legislation because we didn't have much uh, uh, focus then. So that was, that was fine. We, all that has now changed. There's a whole, totally different ballgame. What we haven't, it seems to me, discussed a lot today is this, um, this, this whole question of legitimacy, particularly in the eyes of the voter. They, they turn out the European election is plummeting, continues to plummet, not just here, but all around. Mm. Um, and, and despite the power of the Parliament having increased its power to what we now think is pretty well a, a reasonable and optimal level, the voter doesn't give a damn. Uh, and, and the voter doesn't understand the whole thing, doesn't understand how much of what goes on affects their daily life. Um, clearly, they don't have much help in, in this country, particularly from the media, of course, but you know that's the, the song that uh, is always singable. Uh, but but we, we just have not found a way to put the legitimacy and power of the parliament and the importance of it in the minds of the voter. Now, will the idea of voting for the President of the Commission be the sexy thing that will get them turning out. I, I, I kind of, I, I do sort of doubt it, but um, I'd like to really hear any ideas on how we could better this. Two here, one here, yep. Same question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ben Patterson, another former MEP, this time Conservative. Um, one of the, the MEPs who represents me at the moment is, is Daniel Hannan. As I have exchanges of views every now and again, <laughs> his view, his view of the of the ideological divide in the parliament is somewhat different from the one which has been given. He says the division is not between left and right; it is between what I suppose the Americans call states' rights, as opposed to Washington. And he says that even if it isn't reflected in the parliament, it is reflected in uh, in the electorates. And that's the point that, that David. Now. 
is not the conclusion we might draw from the Daniel Hannan thesis that the Parliament is actually suffering from not being representative of its electorates? And what are the consequences of that? Maybe may be right about the electorate, but he probably doesn't know what's going on in the Parliament because he rarely shows up. But anyway, so the, the final question is down to me as the chair, which, um, can you tell you a little bit about how the MEPs have changed? Oh. <laughs> Completely off the record. Um, <laughs> yeah, my word. Um, first of all, it, it'll be extraordinarily difficult for the European <coughs> Parliament to re reduce the size of its establishment plan because it's actually rather hard to sack anybody uh, because we're all covered by the statute and I actually have often wondered how it is that I could actually get sacked and I'm, sh I'm sure murdering my assistant, one of whom is sitting in this audience, might have helped but I'm not sure it might not have led to my being promoted. Uh, so Sounds I, like tenure at the LSE. It, it, is, yeah, it is very, very difficult. It was an honest, you can certainly claim you're not going to replace people, etc. But I, I honestly think that's a little bit of posturing. I think it's very, very difficult to do. Um, the legitimacy argument. I think the legitimacy argument, you know, well, you divide. We've got, we've got two, two kind of camps. We've got the, the Curry kind of position, which I'm familiar with, that, you know, just get on with it and don't worry about it. But as I suggested, I do worry a little bit about it, and that's why I did raise this question of uh, whether changing the system of, uh, at the next European elections might help. I don't think it's about trying to get the European Parliament to be loved. I don't think that is ever going to be uh, the question. You know, the European Parliament won't be loved any more than Westminster is loved, but that it should be accepted as part of the normal political system seems to me the important thing, and which I spend you know, all my time in the office the, here in London, a fascinatingly different job from what I did in, in, in uh, Brussels, that's what I try to do, you know, try to say, look, the European Parliament isn't some sort of odd planet Mars, it's actually it's here, it's part of the representative structure of this country, and engage with it. Uh, I don't know uh, whether the, the system, what was proposed for the European elections will fundamentally alter this. I, one should never claim that, one single change doesn't. But nevertheless, it will help to generate a bit of a discussion about what would you, you want to be uh, President of the European Commission, now what would your programme be and that of your party? I mean, for What are you going to do on the budget? For what, what is your position going to be on the budget for the next six years, by the way? Uh, where do you stand? I actually think that is healthy for the political culture of uh, uh, the European political culture. I'm not saying it will change everything, but I think it might make a contribution. Um, Daniel Hannan, ever brilliant, you know, the sort of person who, uh, you know, uh, I've only ever seen him, only for the first time I heard him on the Today programme yesterday put on the defensive, uh, because he's uh, so, he's very smart. Of, of course he's right in saying that part of the argument is an argument between those in favour of state rights and those versus a, uh, with a more federal conception of things, but uh, I, I'm kind of find this, you know, fine in theory. But let's take let's take the practice. Are, are, is it <coughs> saying that actually the European Parliament doesn't have a legitimate right under the treaties to actually make a statement as to whether the SWIFT agreement does or does not promote uh, the uh, uh, the rights of uh, Hugo Brady? Uh, is that somehow uh, somehow 
uh, an illustration that you're trying to arrogate to yourself federal powers, it seems to me. It is not. It is actually reflecting a widespread concern inside European societies, which wasn't adequately reflected inside national parliaments. There was very, very minimal debate within the, Europe, the, the parliaments of the member states on this issue, uh, partly because they didn't actually have a power to change things. The parliament did have the possibility to change it, and it did have a very good debate. It was divided. You know, British Conservatives, on the whole, said they thought it was, you know, th they would v vote for it. That didn't necessarily mean to me that they thought in terms of it's a state's rights issue. It is that there's a different of conception ideologically as to how what what the good society should look like, which I thought is what politics is in a very idealistic way, what it's about. Uh, Simon, how on earth do you expect me to say how MEPs have changed? That's an outrageous thing to ask me to do. You know, Maybe I'm you could tell me over a glass of wine. No, 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 no. Look, I think one thing is clear is that you continue to have MEPs who have become very differently from Westminster MEPs, ones who are very specialist in their world. That tradition which started very much you know, under the Single European Act through, uh, through into the 90s with co-decision, you cr created a group of people who are very, very good and, and who, are, uh, you know, who are respected actually by the council a good deal. Uh, people say, you know, so-and-so uh, knows their stuff on this issue. And I think that, is, that has been a constant, this notion. You can say that it may be a little bit of a narrow view. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's not unlike uh, the, the United States. You know, this, this notion that people become expert and are able to develop that sort of ability. So I think, uh, it, you know, I, I don't see a dramatic change it is true that there was the break for British members after 99. I know, you know, I worked with John Tomlinson who said, well, I'm not working under this new system, mate. You know, I'm out. You know, but I don't think that altered the nature of the members because the nature of the work is the same. Uh, okay, in a slightly wider context, there's more co-decision, etc. We've got consent, etc. So I, um, I mean, for me, it's been an absolutely amazing privilege to work with such a wide range of members. I don't say that, but I haven't actually worked with all of you. But I mean, I think it is an extraordinarily diverse range of people. Uh, and uh, I would not say um, that, you know, I, I very much defend the Parliament against the claim that, you know, oh, well, all of these members are either, you know, people who has-beens or never will be. You know, I think this is a completely ludicrous, ludicrous argument uh, that um, you know the level of the members is certainly you know. I always say, well, are you going to tell me that it's worse than a national parliament? Uh, actually, it's much easier to, to assess members of the European Parliament because when they're rapporteurs, we see them close up. We all do, and we can make an assessment of how good they are at negotiating with the council. How good are they? Uh, all of us in the Secretariat will watch. We're watching, uh, and, and, and lots of good members come forward. Um, On that note, Michael, I realise we're keeping the audience away from a drinks reception. Okay, and, sorry. And, and sales of your book. <laughs> so, so thank you all for coming in, Michael. Thank you very much for the book, and thank you, you very much. Much.